Um, I've, I think I've turned it off, but but it's all a bit. Uh, it's all every time it does, it pings. I, I obviously have got my sound on, so I can hear you guys. Did you get a message from one of your um, colleagues saying, "Do not go on the podcast. Whatever you do, it's going to end your career." <laughs> that's a good. That's a good shout. Yeah. Did you hear that ping that just came up? I did. That was another warning. You can just turn the volume down. I guess. Well, no, then I won't be able to hear you. Ah, okay. Oh, okay. Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Walden. My guest today is Ian Harris. Ian is the Chief Executive of the WSET, which is the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. Ian, welcome. Very pleased to have you on the show. Delighted to be here. Um, let's, where can we start? You have an incredibly um, interesting uh, career. How did you How did you get into wine? How did you end up where you are? Um, well, yeah, you're, interesting is a, is a good way of describing it. Um, it's been a really enjoyable career uh, so far. Uh, it's 30. Sorry, forty-three years. And yeah, I, I started because um, I did French at university, uh, and my uh, intention when I when I went to university was to become a teacher. So it's slightly ironic that I've come full circle into an organisation that uh, is involved in education. But I lived in as part of my degree course. The third year of the four-year course was spent abroad, and I was very keen to continue playing rugby. Um, so my tutor said, well, you better apply for a position down in the southwest of France, which I did. And so I ended up being an assistant teacher at a school just south of Bordeaux. Got involved in got involved in wine, as in tasting it, because and then I had a, a real sort of light bulb moment that made me realise that this is the industry I wanted to get into. One of my fellow teachers at the school invited me for dinner. Uh, one of her friends who owned a vineyard in Sauterne. I went along to this um, dinner. This is about sort of three weeks into being into arriving in France. And it was just the most wonderful experience of my life. Um, arrived at this vineyard. It was October, still still quite warm. Fantastic dinner. We went out into the vineyard, and he, the vineyard owner cooked entrecot steaks over uh, a fire made from the vine cuttings, which were still lying in the vineyard. We went back into the into the, the house at about midnight and had some sauterne with dessert, which completely opened my eyes to the world of wine. And that morning, uh, sorry, the next morning when I got back to my apartment I wrote to my mum and said I'm not too sure about education the wine trade seems far more fun and that was it here I am um four decades plus later okay so um so basically it was sort of hands-on experience in in wine that made you that, that shaped your has shaped your career yeah it was really and when I when I would look to see how you get into the wine business because it was something I didn't really know much about. It was a friend of mine who I played cricket with who who had an account with uh, a couple of the fine wine merchants in the West End of London who said to me, well, if I, I'll, I can bring along a price list with an address and a phone number and why don't you just write to them and ask if they got any jobs? And that's exactly what I did. I wrote one letter to one company as a result of which I had one interview and at the end of one hour I was offered a job which I took. Very lowly job working in the cellars of... Uh, mm. Of, of a West um, a West End wine merchant, but it got me it got my foot on the ladder. So I didn't get in through a graduate trainee scheme or anything like that. Who was the wine merchant? It was a company called Christopher and Company, who sadly no longer exist. Uh, they their 
proud to boast was that they were the oldest wine merchant in London, so old that the their records had been burnt in the Great Fire of London, so they didn't know quite how old they were. But had, if that was true, that would have made them older than Berry Brothers, who currently claim to be the oldest wine merchant in London. So you obviously, so you got into it through the sort of uh, atmospheric side, the love of it, and then you getting into the business side. Um, you did have quite a, a interesting career working, obviously working for that particular wine merchant, but then you worked for a multinational. Uh, which was that, and how did you get into involved with them? Yeah, that was Seagram. So Seagram, big multinational uh, wine and spirit company based in America, originally founded in Canada. And Seagram was one of the top four multinational wine and spirit companies. And after 10 years working in the in the sort of traditional wine side of, of life, by then I was, what, 32, and I thought, actually, I really do need to get big company experience. So I went to an agency, and I was, and I was on the sales side. So I was able to basically put myself up as a potential national account manager. Um, so I, I was interviewed by one company called Hedges and Butler, which was part of Bass, the big brewer. And then in between one interview with them and the second interview, the agency put me through, put me up for a job with Seagram. And I had a first interview, second interview, and third interview with Seagram. So I joined Seagram as um, as a national account manager looking after one of their biggest accounts, which was um, IDV, which was the forerunner to what's now Diageo. International Distillers and Vintners. Indeed, indeed, yes. All those names are a real blast from the past. <laughs> to some people listening, to a lot of people listening to this podcast, in their day, although there were sort of household names if you had anything to do with the, with the liquor trade. So before your current job, you taught um, the spirit sections of the diploma at the Wine and Spirit Ed- Education Trust. How did you jump from, from um, the kind of the shop floor, the, the you know pounding the pavement and calling on people to buy your to buy your kit, so to speak, whether it's spirits or wine? How did you get into the into the educational side? Well, it was more that um, I was only on the sales side for about a year and a half at Seagull. I then moved into the marketing team as. Uh, brand manager on Martel Cognac because I spoke fluent French. So I'd got some marketing experience in my previous role. So so I came out of the sales sales side and, as you said, pounding the pavement. So I became a bit of a product expert on Cognac because I was um, I was running the brand in the UK and then moved into a global role with Martel, which was owned by Seagram. And I just thought I knew a fair bit about Cognac. Um, so I approached the WCT. This is back in 1990 to say if ever you need someone to teach about brandy in general but cognac in particular give me a shout i think i know quite a bit about it and a couple of weeks later i got a letter in those days uh back saying would you we've got a vacancy for someone to teach about spirits on diploma would you be available to do it so i did so it was it was again a sort of fortuitous letter at the right time Uh, so i started teaching the spirits side of the diploma from 1990 Pretty much every year until um, until Seagram was taken over in 2001, with the exception of the two years when I was working in France on the global Martel job. So it was a sort of natural fit, really, that I knew knew knew, knew a lot about cognac, still do, um, and it was an opportunity for me to pass that on. And I, as I said to you at the very beginning, I originally wanted to be a teacher, so it came it came fairly naturally to me. Mm, I was one of your students, by the way. God. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean. I mean Waiting to let you know that. Like, how long can I let him go before I? Before I... Well, I, I tell you what, Monty. The, the, the acid test is: Did you pass? I did. 
Well, there you go. So that means I must have been a really good teacher. You were. You were fantastic. Still, still remember your pictures. Oh, that's that's very kind of you to say so. And I'm, yeah, and I'm glad you, you've only just told me that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but um, okay. So, ne- what was the next step then? Well, I, I, well, when Seagram was taken over by, ironically, Diageo, which was a company that, that I knew pretty well. So Seagram was taken over by Diageo and Pernod Ricard in 2001. I was a director of Seagram UK, and we were told very early on in the takeover process that Pernod Ricard UK, who were taking over our business unit, wouldn't require the services of uh, many, indeed, if any, people from Seagram, and certainly not the directors. So uh, I knew quite early on that I was going to be made redundant by um, the the new owners of Seagram. So I started looking around to see what I should do. I was 46. All my friends in the business said, oh, you'll have no problem. You know, everybody knows you. You've got sales experience. You've got marketing experience. You'll you'll just You'll just walk into another job. Well, the phone wasn't exactly ringing off the hook with job offers. And then I found out that the role of chief exec of the WSET was due to, was going to come up fairly, probably pretty much around the time that I was going to be made redundant. So I just started the ball rolling and started to talk to one of the board of trustees because the WSET obviously is a charitable trust and started the ball rolling. And I had an interview in was it just before Christmas, so December 20, 2001, was offered the job in January 2002 and started in April 2002, which is pretty much the time that Seagram was being taken over. So, it, it, again, all the stars aligned for me. I'm, I, I, that's a bit, a bit of a facet of my life. I t- see, always seem to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, but you make your own luck. That's the, that's the trick. But did they see you both, obviously, as an excellent communicator, um, you know, for, for whoever, you know, whether you're communicating with salespeople or, or lesser members of the wine trade, just getting into their first job, maybe, and having to do the WSET um, exams, almost sort of under duress. But it was not just your communication skills. It was also your, your business skills, I would imagine, that were, were sort of like a perfect fit for them. Don't be modest. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. I, I think the thing that clinched it, I think, for, for for me and for the people who gave me this job, and it's the most wonderful job in the world, is that I am absolutely passionate about the power of education, either, f- well, both for people who work in the industry who want to better themselves, but also for the industry as a whole, because the more people understand about wines and spirits, whether they're consumers or the person selling it or promoting it at the point of sale the more people understand about the about the wines and spirits which they they're going to consume the more they'll be prepared to pay the more they'll be prepared to experiment so i my big soapbox when i joined the wct and the reason why they gave me the job in the first place was that it felt i could convince the the global industry about the value of education and treating education as an investment both in your people and also in your business. And one of the first things I did when I joined WSET was to undertake a study uh, with a company called Unwins, who you will probably remember, uh, Monty, sort of a um, high street, high street off-license chain. And we did a test with them really to show the value of education and um, how if you've got a WSET qualification when you're working at the front end of a, of a, a wine shop, how you can actually trade people up and therefore put more put money on the bottom line. So that's what the that, so that's really what my main mantra has been for the last uh, 18 years since I took over. Okay, then it's interesting what you're saying about unwins. 
um, which was kind of, um, obviously people offshore won't have ever heard of them, but it wasn't the most famous of wine merchants or, or chains of wine merchants in the United Kingdom, which is a huge con- consumer of wine and has been um, for about eight, eight or nine centuries. How exactly was that um, trial set up? What, what you know, so that the, the way that you gauged exactly the the the, the uptick in sales because of the, the the staff being more educated and probably more enthused. Yeah, I mean, what we did, we took 30 of their stores, and this was a joint initiative between us and Unwinds. I knew the marketing director of Unwinds, and at the time, they were desperate for any sort of publicity because they were struggling. So we basically cooked up this idea. We took 30 of their stores, we split, we cut them in half uh, with demographics. So, So you had one store in a particular area with a particular demographic, and then another store in a different area, but with a very, very similar demographic. Uh, and uh, and then what we did, so basically we, we took 30 stores, cut them in half, so 15 stores on one side of the paper, 15 on the other, both, so with matching demographics. We then put one half of them through a WCT, just a level one, a foundation level wine program, and the others we didn't, so we left them untrained. We measured EPOS data before and after the training had taken place. And there was a very significant uplift once people had had just a basic induction into wine that they were able to trade people up. I actually myself went into a couple of unwind stores just to, basically just to sort of test the water, even before we'd got the, the um, test in place. And I actually went into an unwind store on the south coast of England and the guy managed to trade me down, which is a pretty, achie- a pretty good achievement. I went in there saying... I'd like to buy an Australian Shiraz, and I literally picked up a bottle of Aussie Shiraz at about twelve ninety nine. He should have said, "Thank you very much, sir. Give me your money. Wrap it up. Off you go." He said, "Oh no, no, no. We've got, we've got, we've got one on promotion at seven ninety nine. So the the manager managed to trade me down from a an expensive bottle to a cheapish bottle. So that convinced me that there was a job to be done. But it was it's, it's it was a piece of research that we did and. Uh, we still use it today, to be honest. It's still one of the best pieces of research to show that education adds value to your business. Okay. It's very interesting to hear that about the, the trading down. It's kind of, I don't know if that's kind of like a British kind of trait where you, you, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know why, but we are a little bit like that sometimes. But um, yeah, I mean, that's right. Um, a little knowledge goes a long way. I mean, that's the other thing that you don't need to be a master of wine to be, to have enough knowledge to be able to convince somebody to spend a little bit more on a bottle of wine or a glass of wine. How has wine education changed um, at all levels uh, in the modern era, both in terms of, you know, we can get almost any wine from any part of the world at any time of day or night, uh, plus, of course, um, social media and the fact that we communicate with anybody across the the world at a flick of a switch. How has that affected or enhanced the potential of wine education i think it's enhanced it to be honest because the fact that there are so many wines available and the the uk is as you said you know we've we've for nine nine centuries and more we've been drinking we've been a great consumer of wine and the uk is still very much the shop window of the world's wine and if you take the number of countries making making wine it's hellishly confusing and i know that you know we're talk, we're, we're here uh, on the italian wine podcast you know italy is about as confusing as it gets for a lot of people so education actually takes on a much more important role when people are being exposed to 
different products from different areas, different grape varieties or different regions. If I go back to 40 years ago in the UK, certainly, you know, you, you went into a, a, an off license because most people weren't dealing with fine wine merchants and you bought brands, you know, you bought Carida or Carrion or anything else beginning with a C, which you hadn't a clue where it came from, but it sort of tasted okay. So that was that was the real thin end of the wedge. And now we're, we're, we're at a fascinating stage of the, in the wine industry, whereas there's so much really great wine coming out of different, different countries that you'd never believe could even produce wine. And obviously England, England's up there with the best now. Uh, so education actually takes on an even more importance when you're dealing with a market that is so complicated. I mean, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of the COVID situation at the moment, how has that affected or how has it enhanced uh, online learning? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, we, we closed our school in, in London in, on, in mid-March and most of our providers around the world, including in Italy, actually, we got, we've got 15 schools in Italy running WCT courses. And well, you'll know how hard Italy was hit. So when the lockdown happened around the world, that really put the mockers on all classroom-based courses and indeed physical examinations. We, we already had an online educational offering, which was pretty good, but relatively small as a percentage of our business. But what we did when lockdown happened and our business really hit, hit the floor with um, physical courses not taking place, was we fast-tracked um, what's called remote invigilation. So this is where you can do an exam now from the comfort of, of your own home on your own device or on your own computer or on, on your own phone. But because our qualifications are regulated, so they are, they're in the UK framework of qualifications, they have, there has to be an invigilation. You can't just do an online course, fill out the questions, press send, and 10 seconds later, you get the result. We have to be assured that the person doing the exam is the person who uh, is supposed to be doing it. So, th so we fast-tracked a system called remote invigilation, which is where you're filmed completing the exam. Uh, this is on the multiple choice ones, and, you've, and you have to set up uh, your phone as a second camera to check that nobody's walking in the room, that you're not cheating, you haven't got um, a, an earphone in your ear with someone giving you the answers. So this, so this is something that we fast-tracked. We were planning to introduce it later in 2000, well, 2020, but we, we fast-tracked it really, because it was, it was going to be the only game in town. So in, in May, uh, we introduced it. And it's still, even now, it's about 25% of the people doing a WCT qualification are doing their exam at home in their, on their own device with their exam being invigilated by this system called remote invigilation. And it will be, it will be a game changer for us going forward, particularly in countries like USA. And then we supplement, we, we've now got a complete end-to-end -end digital offering. So not just digital education and online examinations, but we've also just introduced eBooks uh, three months ago. So you don't even have to get off your chair to answer the door for someone to deliver a book to you. So, so it's a complete end-to-end -end digital offering. And it really does open up lots of opportunity for us particularly in countries like USA. When you go back to that time in Bordeaux where you sort of got the bug for the, the drinks industry, did you ever um, imagine you would end up being you know, the head of the most important wine education system in the, in the, on the planet? Uh, no, I didn't actually. And, and, and to be totally honest, when I joined the trade back in 1977 and did one of the first things that happened was my boss sent me on a WCT course 
uh, which I did and passed it and then did the next one and passed it and then did the diploma and <laughs> at the second attempt passed it. I'm not sure I would have wanted to be the head of WCT in those days because it was pretty sleepy. It was very UK focused, uh, well, entirely UK focused. And it was only really when, when I could see the potential for wine and spirit education that, that it suddenly dawned on me that actually this would be a wonderful job to get but certainly no not in those early days I was I was thinking more to be honest when I think was thinking about going to the wine business of having my own business doing a bit of import export but of course now I know that that's that's a fantastic way to lose a bucket load of money because you know the classic phrase of how do you how do you make a a small fortune in the in the wine trade to start with a big fortune so no i had no 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 thought that i might be heading up this uh, wonderful organization which i now do yeah you know um your your story about when you went you're a young lad and you went to, to bordeaux that's exactly how i started in the wine trade as well so because my french was terrible and i had a i had a french lady who was my french teacher and uh, she basically said, I don't want to see you next term. I was at boarding school. She said, don't come back unless you've spent time in France. And um, to cut a long story short, one of my mates in, who actually sat next to me in school, he said, well, listen, why don't you come down to Bordeaux? Because uh, my parents have links there. And um, and I ended up getting a job with a courtier en vin, which is like a middleman. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the, Bordeaux, the Bordeaux industry wouldn't work without them, would it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was mowing lawns and doing all that sort of stuff, but I learned um, a lot. And, uh, you know, when you talk about the, the power of education, my dad was a headmaster as well. I, I just think it's great that our industry has got this educational side to itself. I, I mean, a lot of members of the public love wine and they drink it every single day, obviously in moderation. But um, being able to pass on the right knowledge at the right time in the right way to a person who could become a lifelong shareholder if you like in planet wine um i just think it's absolutely fantastic i really do i just uh, um the knowledge that you you earn and that you gain um is never ever wasted you i'm sure you'd agree with that i would yeah and and it's and it's also it's 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 a sort of socially acceptable thing to be able to talk about isn't it and, and i'm sure you get it monty when you're meeting friends and they probably shove a glass in front of your nose and go go on in smart ass what's that you know so it's something that pe- everybody wants to talk about it uh, and it's it's it is such a, a, a lovely subject and it's also a subject that is changing on a daily yearly basis what changes do you think our industry will see in the next coming years, um, either at the production level or the education level or any kind of level? I think at the retail level, there's going to be more um, more people buying wines online. I think that's a that's a sort of 21st century trend that people are, people are going to look for knowledge online and they're going to buy online. Uh, the experiential of going to a restaurant or a wine, maybe even a wine merchant to actually taste is still important. Um, but the the value of education, I don't think, diminishes. The, the, um, people want to know why they should pay, or why they why they're being asked to pay twenty pounds for a bottle versus a bottle that's made from the same grape variety that's half the price. But I think um, I think there's going I think there's going to be consolidation at the production level, certainly. Um, so smaller producers will probably be looking to to all get together. But there's always going to be the space for the little wine merchant who is really proactive and sells, uh, sorry, the little wine producer that sells through the cellar door, which effectively is is, is the way that um, online can happen without having to 
give big margins to multiple retailers. So I think the retail environment is going to change. Whether you believe in climate change or not, I certainly believe the world is getting warmer. That's going to have an effect on, on the world in terms of production. We've already seen it in England. I think there's going to be an element of survival of the fittest, though. As with anything because of COVID, a lot of businesses that aren't sharp and aren't smart just might go out of business because it's a very, very competitive market in the wine business. And uh, the world is still producing more wine than it can drink. So that means it's, it's a very, very competitive market. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the production side. I also think the logistics side as well will, will change. I mean, partly also to do with climate change. I know wine obviously can last in bottle. It's not a perishable product in the sense of yogurt or anything like that. But, but I think we're seeing also hiccups in, um, in production cycles as well in terms of bad weather. And so you're not always going to get the same brand every year, top growth or just an everyday one. But I think that's, I think that's a, what, for me, that's part of the fascination. You know, buying, uh, you know, not, I'm not going to mention any brands by name, but if you buy one of these big brands, and the whole point is that it tastes the same year after year. Um, well, that's pretty boring, actually. I, I, I love the vintage variation or any variation that comes through a winemaker doing something a bit different with, with different blends uh, or indeed, you know, different different ways of making wine. I think it's, a, it's such a fascinating industry and, and, the, and people want to learn about it because, because it is constantly changing. And on that note, a perfect segue to say to my guest today, Ian Harris. WSET Chief Executive and my former teacher. It's very, very nice to hear your voice again, reminiscing uh, about some of those old um, names from London and the early 90s, my merchants that no longer exist. Really fascinating to talk to you, and I really hope we can catch up again on the podcast um, at another... I'd, I'd love to, because we're doing some really good stuff in Italy with 15... 15 places you can do a WST qualification and 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 Italy's absolutely flying for us in co- in times of covid we're actually we're growing our business in Italy so um I'd be delighted to have another chat with you at some stage Monty just let me know all right listen it's really nice to talk to you Ian take care and uh, best of luck um with all your projects brilliant thank you very much listen to the Italian wine podcast wherever you get your podcasts We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.